0: So um, I thought that was a terrific closing panel. A lot of content, a lot of information, and seamlessly designed by Dever Lappin, who's been our strategic advisors from, advisor uh, from the time we basically got started. So we have a terrific keynoter here today, a name that's a familiar one, certainly to all of us in Washington, but I think across the nation. Uh, Just to mention a few of his many accomplishments, Um, Bill Novelli uh, was uh, previously the CEO of AARP. He founded uh, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, which was tremendously successful. And he headed the public relations, uh, relations firm, coincidentally named Porter Novelli. He's now a professor uh, at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. He founded and oversees the Global Social Enterprise Institute there, and co-chairs the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care. We're honored to have him here today. Uh, Bill, thank you for joining us. <clears throat> that was a gutsy move. <laughs>
1: thank you. <laughs> Well, George, thank you so much for that kind introduction, and good afternoon to everybody. Um, I'm very, very pleased to be at this important summit, because no problem in America is more challenging and more important than Alzheimer's disease. Uh, as Us Against Alzheimer's points out, and I'm sure you know this well, of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States, Alzheimer's is the only one without a means to prevent or treat it. That really, that really stuck with me. Now, my topic today is about finding the tipping point, the tipping point um, in the movement to conquer Alzheimer's. Now, George and I talked about this, and I've, I've given uh, the idea of a tipping point some, some careful thought. So let me tell you where I came out. First of all, a few years ago, there was an article in the Washington Post And it reported that a newly discovered bacterium is apparently eating much of that big, ugly oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And that bacterium could very well take care of this enormous problem. Now, I said to myself, wow. Wow. Wouldn't it be great to have a bacterium to attack other big problems, like skyrocketing health care spending, or the failure of our long-term care system in this country, or social and economic inequality, or most of all, how about a bacterium to attack Alzheimer's? Well, unfortunately, it turns out that the Washington Post article was inaccurate. There apparently is no bacterium to eat the oil spill or any of the other huge problems we face, So the conclusion of all this is, we have to do it ourselves. And with regard to Alzheimer's, we have to do it fast. The Alzheimer's movement, all of you in this room, are in a hurry. The curse of this disease is expanding rapidly. You want speed, faster and more research toward life-saving treatments and a cure. Now, uh, big social movements don't necessarily bring quick solutions and the problems are enormous. My favorite saying is that problems worthy of attack prove their worth by attacking back. Problems worthy of attack prove their worth by attacking back. These are the big ones like Alzheimer's that don't lend themselves to sitting back or to muddling through. So, what is it going to take to win the war against this disease? I think you know because you're already doing it. It takes effective policy advocacy, like your Storm the Hill initiative and congressional reception and new network, Veterans Against Alzheimer's. It takes working in partnerships, as you are with business and nonprofit organizations, government, think tanks and others, all involved. It takes effective, creative social media and other media treatments to tell the story powerfully and well. It takes community action, which is where so many of you are fighting the good fight, from Los Angeles to North Carolina to South Florida. It takes champions and other high-level activists, which this movement has in abundance, And of course, it takes research at every level and every type, from biomedical to consumer to clinical. It takes patient and family support, the way AARP and so many others of you are involved in dementia care. And most of all, it takes leadership, leadership, and leadership. Now, in the midst of all this hard work that you're doing and all this aggressive, fast-paced action, there's one idea that seems especially attractive and beguiling, and that's the notion of a tipping point. So wouldn't it be great if we had an electric, spontaneous, explosive moment that tipped everything our way? After all, there's a big gap between the huge size of the Alzheimer's problem and the attention that's being paid to it. So where's the eruption? Where's that special moment that closes the gap and galvanizes the world? Now, Malcolm Gladwell helped popularize the concept of a tipping point in his book of the same name. He borrowed the idea from medicine, and then he applied it to social issues. Gladwell defined it as the one dramatic moment in an epidemic, when everything can change all at once. He went on to say that an idea spreads because of a few key groups or individuals, the networked people, as he called them, the networked people whom everybody follows. It's similar to that famous quote by the anthropologist Margaret Mead, who said, never doubt that a small group of citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever does. Well, Gladwell would agree with her if that small group or that individual is famous and highly influential. Now, here are some historic tipping points that made a lasting difference. Nancy Brinker told the story of how Betty Ford, wife of then-President Gerald Ford, in the early 70s, candidly and publicly disclosed that she had breast cancer. This was an unheard of revelation at the time. The word breast was hardly mentioned in public, never mind the shadowy fact of breast cancer. But almost immediately, physicians reported a large increase in women asking for screenings and for help. And then there's Magic Johnson. He was a one-man tipping point when 26 years ago, He stunned the world by announcing that he was HIV positive. At the time, the disease was considered to be mostly confined to the gay community, drug users, and people who had received bad blood transmissions. But Johnson changed all that. He said he would become a spokesman for the HIV virus and that he planned to go on living for a long time. And he is doing both. Now, more recently, Vice President Joe Biden helped tip the issue of same-sex marriage. He surprised the nation, and he certainly surprised his boss, Barack Obama, by saying that he was absolutely comfortable with men marrying men and women marrying women. Biden uh, credited his change of heart to the TV show Will and Grace, and for good measure, he later married two White House officials, at his home a few years later. Now, some tipping points, some of these magical moments, are not spontaneous at all. They are carefully planned. When Branch Rickey brought Jackie Robinson to Big League Baseball to break the color barrier, he could have chosen any number of outstanding black players. But he set out to find who he called the right man, Ricky knew that the first black major league player would face racism and discrimination. And for his part, Robinson agreed that he would never lose his temper and would do nothing to jeopardize the chances of all those who would follow him if he could break the color barrier. It was a carefully designed tipping point. And as Branch Rickey used to like to say, luck, luck is the residue of design. And when Rosa Parks refused to step to the back of the bus and was arrested and as a result became an important civil symbol of the civil rights movement, it was in part because the NAACP prepared and they thought she was the best candidate to see through the court challenge that would follow. And as Parks later said, people always say I was tired, and that's why I didn't give up my seat. No, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. So yes, tipping points happen, sometimes spontaneous and sometimes random, and other times carefully orchestrated and planned. Now in the tobacco wars, two of the most important tipping points were very carefully planned out by a pair of lawyers, the first was in the mid 90s when the then FDA administrator David Kessler, who was a lawyer and a physician, declared that nicotine was a drug, that cigarettes were drug delivery devices which FDA regulates, and therefore the agency had jurisdiction over tobacco. It set off the modern tobacco wars that eventually resulted, albeit years later an FDA oversight over tobacco. And as is often said, whoever controls nicotine is going to win that war. The second tobacco tipping point came out not long after, when the then Attorney General of Mississippi, Mike Moore, came up with his own novel legal strategy. Mike said that, and I'm quoting him, the great state of Mississippi had never smoked a cigarette and yet it was paying out millions of dollars for tobacco related disease and on those grounds he sued the tobacco industry and many of his fellow state ags followed suit the eventual result was a multi-million dollar settlement that curbed tobacco marketing funded education to prevent tobacco use and had other important effects that have helped drive down smoking to historic lows So here's the question of the day. Do we need tipping points to conquer Alzheimer's? It certainly would be good to have them, spontaneous and or carefully planned. But we don't need to, we can't afford to wait for them. Like not having a magic oil eating bacterium, we need to do it ourselves. We need to make tipping points happen. My colleague, Leslie Crutchfield, in our Global Social Enterprise Initiative at Georgetown, is just finishing a book on social movements, examining why some social changes happen and succeed and others don't. And she finds that successful social movements tend to be aggressive and they tend to be forceful, with leaders at every level of the movement, from the bottom to the top. In other words, we have to create our own destiny, just as you are doing in attacking Alzheimer's disease. Last year, I was at the Research America Advocacy Awards dinner, and I heard Tom Cole, the Oklahoma Republican, who chairs the Subcommittee on Labor, Health and Human Services, Education and Related Agencies in the House Appropriations Committee. Now, let me repeat that. Cole is an appropriator, and he's speaking tomorrow at your Capitol Hill Day. When he accepted that Research America Award, Representative Cole spoke personally about his father's Alzheimer's experience. He talked about the need to spend more, much more, on Alzheimer's research, and he thanked NIH Administrator Francis Collins, who was there that night, for educating him on the issue. And I'm sure he also got some education that evening from George Radenberg, who, along with his wife, Trish, also received an award. George said a number of things, but the one that stuck most with me was that we have to build an Alzheimer's movement to disrupt business as usual and confront this disease at a pace and a scale equal to the challenge. So Congressman Cole and George Radenberg, and Francis Collins that night, they were tipping points. Um, And so is the idea of an XPRIZE and global crowdsourcing to catalyze a cure. They are potential tipping points. And as I think about it, this summit could very well become a tipping point. So yes, it's good to have spontaneous, magical moments happen, but we need to depend on ourselves We need to create our own tectonic shifts. We need to create our own destiny because luck is the residue of design. So good luck and thank you very much.
0: I want to give people a chance to have a shot uh, at Bill Novelli because I think the notion of um, taking advantage of randomly presented but dramatic events, being ready for that, uh, or and we're planning them, uh, and or letting that out there but at the same time as you're building a movement is a tremendous challenge. So we're building this movement, uh, but we've got to be ready for potential events, acts that seem unjust, the notion that African Americans are going to bear a third of the costs of this disease in the coming decades, the facts that $2.5 trillion are going to be spent uh, in the Latino community between now and 20... There's a racial element to that. There's a sexist element to this. How do we capture and find the words or otherwise uh, catalyze this? We had a president of the United States who got diagnosed with this disease, went to the other other room and wrote a letter to all Americans. It didn't catch on. It wasn't at the right time, at the right moment, Uh, so uh, we couldn't take advantage of that back in the early 90s. But I'd like to ask any of you who have a question. Jill Lesser?
2: A number of um, celebrities, Uh, you know, we lost Glenn Campbell this summer, Ronald Reagan. Um, You know, we could probably sit here and name 25 fairly major celebrities who've come out, Seth Rogen, others who've talked about this disease in very, very personal ways, Um, but we haven't hit the tipping point. And so one question that I have is around how do we... Um, energize young people and how do we make this uh, a disease or a a, a cause that where we're galvanizing not just the perception that this is an end of life post you know 70 80 disease that for whatever reason seems to garner less sympathy or urgency
1: um is this working yeah um it's it's a terrific question so you said how do we galvanize younger people right is that what you said Okay, so I have a couple of thoughts here. Number one, one thing I learned through good research at AARP was that the generations in this country, perhaps across the world, but certainly here, are incredibly connected. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm at Georgetown, so I'm dealing with young MBAs and undergraduates, and um, it's very clear to me that they care deeply about their parents and their grandparents. What do their grandparents care about? They care about their children and their grandchildren. So that's one of the reasons why we never have any intergenerational warfare in this country. The connecting points are really powerful. And um, I know when George and I talked, he, he said the same thing you did, which was, you know, the, the gap between the seriousness of this problem and the attention paid to it is vast. Where is the tipping point? Why, it, why isn't it happening? Well, here's my thought. Um, it goes a little bit counter to what you said, but I think it comes out in the same place at the end. Um, given the the connecting points between the generations, um, a tipping point doesn't always have to be a Betty Ford or a Magic Johnson. A tipping point can be a powerful trend. And the most powerful trend I know about is the aging of the baby boomers. Now, the reason I care about this is because I work on advanced illness, and end-of-life care. And um, I studied this pretty carefully at AARP. And one thing you can say about the baby boomers are they are feisty as hell. There's probably um, 80% of this room is probably baby boomers, or 50% at least. And the oldest of the baby boomers is now 71 years old. They have taken care of their parents, and they are looking at their own mortality. It's staring them in the face. And I feel very sure that they're not going to put up with the same nonsense um, as they age, uh, that, that their parents did. And so I see the baby boomers as a potential, call it a tipping point trend, if you will, where it's going to influence their children and their grandchildren, and it's going to influence the healthcare system.
0: Um, any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, we got, a got a mic coming.
2: I just wanted to uh, comment on behalf of young people, I know Nihal is here, he spoke yesterday, he reached out to me actually, it's just kind of a chain reaction, I started my own movement at my school, and it's actually a lot easier than you think, I just post on social media and I get about 100, 200 kids that are very interested, because they have personal connections, they reach out, it's kind of a chain reaction. I think it's something that can go a long way as long as you have like, kids like Michal and myself that take initiative to have personal connections. And it's like wildfire.
1: Um, I didn't hear a question in there, but I want to congratulate you anyway on what you're doing. Uh, you know, at the, at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and many of your other organizations, you know, we all have this, this concept, this strategy of youth advocacy. I love youth advocacy, because young people his age and younger are essentially fearless. And they will lobby anybody, at any time, in any place. Not only their peers, but state legislators, Tom Cole, you name it. And so I I see youth advocacy as a powerful strategy.
0: That oh, also reminds me of a line of my wife when she went in and shook the shoulders of a senator who had already committed to support everything we wanted, and she said, I want a contribution from you to us. Uh, and she said, what is he going to do, fire me? <laughs> <Right? clears throat> Michael Allenbogen.
2: This is actually a question I was going to ask early this morning at the first panel, but I think you might be able to help here also. As an advocate for this cause who's living with the disease... I have to tell you, I have found it very frustrating because I try to engage so many people to step up to the plate, and the problem I run into is, first of all, the people who are living with disease, a lot of them can no longer speak. A lot of them can overwrite. The caregivers, they tell me they don't want to get involved. They say, I'm so damn busy with this disease that all I want is five minutes away from it. So... I say, okay, well, okay, I can live with that. Well, when your loved one passes, step up to the plate then. I just want to forget about it. I don't want to deal with the hard. I just want to get away from it. Um, How do you build an army of people? Because there are no survivors with this disease. And the way I see it, the only people that can really step up to the plate are the people who are not even impacted by it. And that's where I see the real problem with this. I mean, even... My congressman senators, senator said, Mike, there's nobody knocking at our door for this disease to let us know. Well, there never will be because they're all dying.
1: Yeah, um, I both sympathize with what you're saying, and I also understand it. Um, Here's my thought on that. Um, People with Alzheimer's uh, are usually unable to speak for themselves. That's a given. So, therefore, we have to think about caregivers and even surrogates of caregivers, if you will, And it's the hardest thing in the world to be a caregiver. We all know this so well. Um, Recently, uh, Cigna and the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care did a piece of research on caregivers. And it was the kind of research that I hadn't done before. What they basically did was use social media uh, to collect verbatim responses from caregivers who were networked, who were talking to each other. I've seen a lot of caregiver research in my AARP days and in my CTEC days, but I've never seen research like this. The anguish among these people was palpable. They were overwhelmed. They were stressed. And I said to myself, I can understand why they're not speaking out. Um, We have this concept, and maybe you call it the same thing, shared and informed decision-making. So the idea is that we've got to get the patient and the family engaged in treatment decisions. And the the great challenge is how do you do that? How do you get the family, especially the family caregiver, involved? We have got to crack that code. And it's not easy to do because of the state of affairs that they have to deal with. But, uh, But I'm convinced that if we work on that, we can do a much better job. And we can turn caregivers into advocates.
0: Terrific. One last question right here, young lady. Before
1: we take the question, may I say one thing, George. Sure. I want to call out David Satcher. I'm looking at a one-man tipping point. <laughs> I'm a fan of David Satcher's
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're now that's this afternoon's meeting, David <laughs> <this>. <laughs>
2: I'll just be brief, but I have to say on behalf of myself, and I have Alzheimer's, and at least three or possibly four other people in the room with the same diagnosis, we can speak out, and we do, and we do presentations, and... Okay, so here we are, and there's probably some others here who uh, maybe haven't come to terms yet. I'm sorry? I'm supposed to say something about Capitol Hill. We'll all be there, yes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Chair. Anson, we have to, uh, that is a bit of our challenge as leaders uh, to try and figure out how to give you voice in an aggregate way, as well as the personal storytelling way, which is so powerful. I think, a, as I say tomorrow, you're going to do it tomorrow with your members of Congress, because that is the most telling way to do it. So thank you, Bill Novelli. Appreciate your thoughts. I had a, and I had I had a comment. I'm sorry. No, a, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I had a comment. Um, I was diagnosed in 2015 with early onset Alzheimer's. I proceeded to go home. Stayed in my bed for about two months, grieving, and not really ever wanting to get out again. Tipping point for me was I got a card in the mail from an organization called AARP, Mm -hmm. Seeking Volunteers. So I got out of bed, and I went to one of the meetings, and uh, I got trained. So I actually teach a class, Life Reimagined, which... I apply to myself now. So I have reimagined my life from being a flight attendant to now being an advocate for Alzheimer's.
1: I, I, can't, be, I can't be more proud of AARP and of you. Um, you know, the woman who started AARP, uh, her name was Ethel Percy Andrus, and she called AARP volunteers an army of useful citizens. And that's what we all have to be. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh, Well, we have happy birthday to Linda Everman. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Linda. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Linda. I'm glad you're celebrating with us. Just a few people in for lunch.
2: And... In Linda's honor, we're going to hold our faith uh, coalition lunch and learn in the back room. We're going to have speed lunch and learn on our book coming uh, that Linda's leading, a book of worship for people living with dementia. So anyone who'd like to join us
1: back there, please do. Happy birthday, Linda Everman.
0: So we have uh, another This Is Us uh, video. My daughter, who is in the front row, represents the female lead of that program, so... uh, just came handy but let's uh, play this video
2: i'm linda everman i'm one of millions of americans who've been I, I, impacted by i think we've the seen this one disease. i was a caregiver for 18 years for my
0: dad yeah happy birthday Going <laughs> <laughs> to get a replay all right let's move on to
1: uh,
0: our next panel if uh, we don't have another video handy, David. Um, So our next panel is, uh, what, uh, phase two of the path to 2025. And we're going to now talk about uh, one of the problems identified in the first panel on this subject, which is detection and diagnosis. Uh, And it's going to be chaired by uh, Ron Peterson. I hadn't seen Ron in the room yet. Oh, we're early. So maybe we just ought to sing uh, to Linda again. Let's take uh, let's take about a ten minute uh, break, uh, and and we'll come back at one o'clock.